0: first kicks off our move to improve challenge. And this time it's a little bit different because we're focusing on mobility and strength. So if you really want to start to open up that mobility, build consistency, because every day during these 30 days, I'm going to show up with you. I'm going to have you go through different flows, whether it's core based mobility, strength. There's no hit workouts in this one. We are focused on form. We're focused on the body and we're focused on moving you forward to feel something different. We've had thousands of people go through this program and is continuing to change and adapt so I know what you need and what is best to help you. So come join us in this brand new Move to Improve 30-Day Challenge. It is early bird pricing that kicks off today, but it only lasts 6 days days. So you have a limited time to get in for just $45 of 30 days of knowledge, education, 27 brand new videos delivered to you in an easy, accessible manner. So come join us, the Move to Improve Challenge, save it and send it over to your friends as well in order to get into this challenge and start to feel something different in their body. I am so excited. Coming back on the podcast, we actually have Katie Goss. Now, she has an incredible story talking into pelvic organ prolapse, and we're going to talk about exactly what that is, the different stages it can be, the different types it can be, and what specifically happened with her and her journey through that. Now, Katie actually started as a critical care nurse, and she was working as a nurse for quite a while until she started to make the switch, especially after being a mom, after having kids, which she's going to talk about, and started to get trained in Pilates and just continue her health journey and education in order to be able to continue to help others. Now, Katie's going to talk into her different health issues as well, having gone through a six-hour pelvic reconstructive surgery, what exactly she did, why she did it, and her recovery process through it. And also, this has just helped her to bring so much public floor awareness to other people. And she talks about how she's dealt with EDS on top of that and being a mom. So there's so much that we're going to dive into, so much that Katie continues to educate through, especially on their platform, Spread Wealth, which we'll talk about as well. Cater Tot. Just kidding. I really like (laughs) your handle. Um, But Katie, thank you so much for being with us. I know that we had you and... Your partner on before, but it's nice to just be able to also dive into more of your story and health issues and where you are now um, as a result of it and just get a little bit more personal with you and your story. So thank you
2: for being here. Yeah. Thanks for asking me back on.
0: Yeah. So one of the first places that I think would be a great place to start is just kind of introducing you know your background because I know that you started in health, but you're in a very different
2: area of health now. So, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I um, originally went to school for nursing. My education is in nursing. I come from a family full of healthcare providers. Uh, my mom was a nurse. My aunt was a nurse. My grandmother was a nurse. Um, I have an uncle who's an anesthesiologist, and the list just goes on. So, it was um, a very natural. Field for me to go into. And I've always been really fascinated with the human body and anatomy and health, and, you know, just passionate about helping people. So after nursing school, I got into um, critical care nursing in a hospital, um, taking care of cardiac patients, post uh, open heart patients primarily, but, you know, anyone who had any cardiac background or cardiac procedures. And I, Liked that a lot. Um, when I started out in it, there was you know just constant learning every single day. Something new um, popped up that you had to learn about, which was great, and I loved that challenge. There was a lot of critical thinking that came into play, um, and then you know a few years into it, I started getting burnt out, which is you know a very very common mm-hmm. issue with nurses, especially in acute care settings the demand for nurses to do more, have more patients, and the budget cuts that take resources away from nurses can present really unsafe situations um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's, you feel like you're not really helping people and certainly not helping them the way that they need. And there was a lot of feeling like we were patching people up and then just pushing them out the door. And, you know, you'd see the same patients come back later, especially with chronic issues like congestive heart failure, things like that, you'd see the same people just come back over and over because they weren't getting any education on the lifestyle choices that they were making that were contributing to their chronic health conditions. And I got burnt out with that. I just felt like it wasn't, I didn't leave feeling good about what I was doing as often as I wanted to. You know, of course there were some days that you had big wins with patients where you, you know that you really changed someone's life and impacted it. And that was very rewarding. But that wasn't the majority of the time. Like the majority of the patients that I saw were chronically ill. And I just got very frustrated with, with really the whole system.
1: No. And I feel like what you're saying, and, and I know it's so prevalent in nursing specifically, um, but I, I was just at this PT conference and one of the topics, one of like the topics we spent a couple hours discussing was burnout and physical therapy. And how many physical therapists are experiencing the same thing? And you outlined a couple of the primary issues right there. It's like, okay, we're expecting people to do slightly more and increase their productivity numbers while not having a huge increase in pay or <laughs> compensation for that based on whatever their productivity is. And I, my, in my opinion, I think one of the biggest things is so many people go into these health realms... Are these health professions wanting to work on health and wanting to help people yes. optimize their health. And as soon as you start to realize like, oh, wow, we're not really doing that. I liked how you said, we're just kind of patching people up and shoving them out the door. And I can't count the amount of people that would come back in for the same pain or come back in a year later and be like, yep, pain's back. And it's just like, well, yeah, because we didn't actually address things. So, I mean, would you say that these were some of the most, you know, The largest issues that contributed to your transition into educating more in an online space? And how exactly did that happen for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think also the implementation of patient satisfaction scoring and, you know, the way that that impacted, you know, like Medicare reimbursements and stuff really, at the time when I was actively working as a nurse in the hospital, that was being implemented. And that was kind of crazy because. You had patients who needed to hear um, that, you know, their diet, their decision to continue smoking cigarettes and, you know, the choices they're making were were going to ultimately kill them, you know, when you have people who've had multiple heart attacks and, but you couldn't say things that upset the patient because if you got a negative satisfaction score, then Mm. you got in trouble. So you came, it got to the point where it was more almost felt more like waitressing like you were making sure that you know they had a heated blanket and that they had the right you know meal that they ordered and you know there was like this emphasis put on the patient satisfaction which unfortunately sometimes they need to hear things that they they don't want to hear so that was very limiting as well and challenging the budget cuts we had a our diabetic educator was cut from the budget so having a new patient come in, newly diagnosed diabetic. And, you know, we would have five patients and have to try to educate them on diabetes, which is pretty complex. Um, if you're not at all familiar with it, you know, taking your blood sugars and carb counting and, you know, injecting insulin and, you know, trying to educate them on that, on top of the five patients that you had was, um, it was a lot. And, uh, it just, I, I really just got burned out. Um, at that time, I also was pregnant with my first son, and uh, on the cardiac floor, we would sometimes get detoxing patients, mm-hmm. which are interesting, <laughs> and oftentimes they hallucinate and get combative. And um, I was very pregnant with my son, mm-hmm. and had one of those detoxing patients hit me in the belly, and I was like, "That's it, I'm done. I'm not um, not going to finish out, you know, until my due date." Mm-hmm. And um, my husband and I at the time made the decision that you know, it was just better for me to stay home and have the baby. And I had planned on returning. And um, during my maternity leave, I got to kind of the 12-week point when I'd planned to return. And after speaking to a lot of the other nurses on the floor who'd had babies, um, none of them had been able to keep their milk supply when they returned to work, because although you're supposed to be given a space and time to pump, the reality was that there just wasn't time. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know, when you have patients that are critically ill, you, that is your priority. And so I, my husband and I together made the decision that I was going to not return um, because it was more important to us to be able to, to breastfeed, you know, for at least a year. Or so that was kind of what prompted that original departure. And then, you know, I had a second kid and ran into some health issues of my own. And navigated the healthcare system as a patient, which was even more eye opening. And and that's what really sealed the deal for me on not returning in that setting and getting more into the education. Wow, that is just so wild. And you don't even, I feel like, at
0: least for me, I don't even think about, you know, yes, you would lose your milk supply if you're not able to have the space and time to pump. and, And some jobs, Like nursing, you just don't have that Mm -hmm. capacity or space. So I can't imagine, you know, the thought process of going back into that decision and having to go back to work. Like imagine, I I just think about the people who have
2: to go back into that situation, don't have a choice. And that is so hard. It's interesting, too, because even uh, speaking to the nurses, like some things came up that I hadn't considered either, which is when they did have time to go pump. Um, they were so in like a heightened sense of stress that sometimes they weren't able to to get like a letdown or the milk to release to pump. Cause they were they were just in this constant state of stress. So even if they yeah. did have the space, it's like they couldn't calm themselves enough to yeah. to really get a good pumping session. So
1: I just think this also points out a, a huge frustration of mine, like outside of the healthcare system, just how we value child care in general in our country, like it's it's just a shock to me that there's not that system set up. Like you said, in hospitals where they're constantly cutting nursing hours to have somebody coming off of maternity back into the system and be able to say, okay, this is what we're going to do to help you in this initial stage of raising your child. Like so many other developed countries have so many different programs in place that help support mothers in those, in those first years and th- I guess throughout the time <laughs> raising their child because you know, as America, we pride ourselves on being a country that allows everyone to contribute. And how can we do that su- sufficiently if we're not supporting mothers in those initial years? It's just crazy to me.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, you know, I will say some um, healthcare systems are better at it than others. So I, you know, I, mine wasn't great where I worked, but I know that there's some, there are some who do a much better job. So don't want to throw them all in that category.
1: <laughs> Blanket statements are always dangerous, but hey.
2: And we can go on about this
0: and try to solve the solution. I don't know that we're going to in this podcast. But what I really want to dive into also is you mentioned you had struggles, you had your own health struggles after your second baby. Do you, do you mind talking about what exactly yeah. you were going through?
2: Yeah. So um, I experienced um, pelvic organ prolapse, and you know prior to that, pelvic floor dysfunction. Although I. Didn't know what it was at the time. I had really after the birth of my first, I started having some feelings of, you know, just heaviness in my pelvis, almost a feeling of like having a tampon in but not having one in, and mm. had explained some of those sensations. You know, I remember walking him in the stroller, and I lived downtown in Denver at the time, and I would walk the same couple block loop just over and over because if I needed to go to the bathroom, I was like, I can't be very far away from the house because if I need to go to the bathroom, like I need to go to the bathroom right now. And I'm not going to be able to like hold it if I'm too far away from home. So just walking that same little loop. And I remember talking to the OBGYN at the time and mentioning that, and, you know, was really just told like, yep, that's very common postpartum, like it'll heal, you'll get better, just give yourself time. And I guess it was sort of a struggle for me feeling like, but I shouldn't feel like this. Like before I had a baby, I was super active and running and, you know, doing all the stuff and felt fine. And, you know, I feel very different now and definitely not fine. And it's impacting my life in ways like that, like not being able to walk to the park that was eight blocks away because I didn't know if I would be able to make it back if I needed to use a bathroom. Like, you know, feeling like that wasn't normal, but really being kind of brushed off and told that it was fine. So, I mm-hmm. didn't dig further into it. Um, had my second baby, and after him, it was it was much more apparent that something was wrong. And after kind of, I guess that six week initial kind of healing period, which is interesting how it's like after six weeks, it's like, oh yeah, you're you're good. To yeah, go. right. <laughs> um <laughs> it's it's just an arbitrary number that's like as if everyone is the the same in their healing and stuff. But you know, I didn't feel normal and I actually felt a lot more pressure and felt almost like bulging sensation down there. So, you know, being a nurse, I'm like, exam skills are part of what we do. So I got a mirror and started looking around and I'm like, wow, I don't remember there being kind of tissue, you know, like at the vaginal opening. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't remember it looking that way. And I understand, you know, there was some tearing and things change. But I'm like, you know, I think by now it should be more back to normal and again, brought it up, um, with the OB and, and midwife, um, they were in the same practice and, you know, didn't, didn't get a lot of help was just kind of told, you know, well, it takes time to heal and like things aren't ever going to be the same, you know, your body's going to be different after you have kids and, you know, it's just not a big deal. And, and it, it was really frustrating and, um, made me feel a little bit like I was crazy, (laughs) like I was being a hypochondriac or, you know, making up issues that didn't exist. Like I felt very dismissed. Oh, and so I started reading and researching things and, you know, was like, I think that I have prolapse. And so, um, they sent me to, no, I asked for a referral to public PT. I wasn't offered that, got that referral and went to the first one Um, which I learned some things I wouldn't say it was particularly helpful. Um, there wasn't any, you know, internal exam done or anything like that. Wow. Um, and that pelvic PT was very just kind of, well, you might not, you know, be able to run anymore and, you know, you're gonna have to avoid certain activities like lifting weights probably isn't a good thing for you to return to. And, you know, a lot of very limiting stuff that I was not, I'm like, well, that's not going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So, do you lift weights now? Looking, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know. I just
1: do. fast forward <laughs> before we dice through a lot of that. Um, yeah, I just so many things along that path. It's just kind of like Jen and I are sitting here like heartbroken because we know that you, you know, going through this as a nurse, as somebody who has some health background. Like I'm um, just imagining all the other people uh, you know, around our country that go through something similar and and don't have the knowledge to maybe do some research themselves or or go and and search for more um where would you say it was that you really started to understand your path to okay this is what i might need to do to start getting back to some of those activities that you know i so badly wanted to return to like running or or lifting and um can you talk through that a little bit
2: yeah um I mean, I continued just researching, reading more things. I stumbled upon um, Katie Bowman. I think it was some blog articles of hers that she had written on pelvic health and like prolapse and diastasis uh, recti, which, you know, kind of go hand in hand in a lot of situations. And started reading some of her stuff, you know, which she's a researcher and biomechanist. And it just made a lot of sense to me, like the things that she was saying. Biomechanically that were impacting you know prolapse and or causing it, it just made sense. like I read it and I'm like, that completely makes sense to me. And you know, I started digging more and um, went through a couple different pelvic pts and I found one who was amazing, and she pretty much said, "You can do whatever you want to. you know, I will work with you and we will come up with strategies to make it the least." amount of risk, or we can, you know, put sensors on and have you replicate the movements that you're wanting to do that are giving you symptoms. And we will come up with strategies to modify things and make it work the best that we can for you. And that, that approach of having someone as a partner in helping versus someone telling you, here's what you can and can't do or Mm. It was a very different approach. It was a breath fresh air. And it was, I was like, Yep, you are my person. <laughs> and uh, you know, we worked together for like a year and a half and we made a lot of ground and improvements, but ultimately, you know, my prolapse, um, I had multiple prolapses and it was very significant. And ultimately I did end up um opting for a pelvic reconstructive surgery. But, you know, I made that decision after really putting in a lot of work and um I felt like doing doing everything I could to avoid that. And so it really was kind of a last resort option for me. Wow. I mean, I think this I, I'd
0: love. So thank you first for sharing yeah. so much so openly of your story, because I know a lot of women are impacted with this and not only having a baby. You know, you, you can have prolapse without having a child. So I think that's really important. And I do want to break down real quick just so that people aren't in the weeds here, what is pelvic organ prolapse? Like, can we can we define mm-hmm. that real quick and and kind of say what yeah. different stages there
2: might be? Yeah. Um, so prolapse is really just it's kind of the same as like a herniation. People I think are more familiar with a hernia, which is kind of like a bulging. You think of, you know, an abdominal hernia or an inguinal hernia, you have kind of a bulging of tissue. And with pelvic organ prolapse, it's essentially the organs are shifting and kind of bulging into areas that they don't belong or they're not typically at. So with a uterine prolapse, it means the uterus is descending down into the vagina. So the top of the vagina is kind of bulging downward. And so that that's what can cause pressure. And there are different grades of that, like you mentioned. And it, can be very slight or it can be like a complete prolapse where the entire uterus is actually outside of the body. I saw that one time as a nurse, Hmm. um, but I, you know, otherwise I I don't think it's very common to have a complete prolapse like that. And then the other organs that commonly prolapse, a lot of people have heard of like bladder slings, I think. Um, Hmm. So the bladder can prolapse into the vagina as well. And that's kind of the anterior or front wall of the vagina. Um, With childbirth, you can tear the fascia on, you know, either the back or the front wall of the vagina during childbirth. And that's really your support structure for those organs. So if you think about the bladder, like a balloon that fills up with urine and then empties, you know, the fascia really helps support that. So if you have tears in that after childbirth, it's, you kind of lose that support. And so it can kind of fall into the vagina. Um, and then the same thing can happen with the posterior wall, which is called a um, sorry the bladder prolapse. That's called a cystocele, is the medical term for that. And then the posterior wall um, is called a rectocele, and it's basically the same thing, but with the the rectum um, or the colon there doing doing the same thing, bulging into the vaginal opening mm-hmm. or sorry into the vagina. All of those are you know there are various grading for all of those. So. And, you know, I've read a lot of things that say, you know, some mild prolapse is considered normal post-pregnancy just because those tissues are, I mean, they go through a lot of trauma and they are stretched a lot during childbirth. And so, you know, a mild prolapse for a lot of people, they're not even going to know. So it might be something that a medical provider might note on a chart or something, but if it's not causing symptoms, it's really not it's really not an issue or anything to worry about.
0: When you went in after your first baby and you were telling him about, or your doctor about the symptoms, were you checked before saying like, oh, this is normal?
2: Yes. And so here this, and I learned a lot about this since then. And my hope is that this has improved. And I'm almost certain that it has just because it's been a while for me since that, that time, I mean, my oldest son just turned 10. So, and I've heard so much more talk about just pelvic floor health. I know it has a long way to go, but it has gotten so much better than it was at the time. Yeah. But the issue with it is if you think about you go for an exam, like a pap smear, and what position are you in when they do a pap smear? Yeah, on your back. Like you're on your back and your feet are up, right? And so if you think about gravity and your organs, things are going to fall back into place in that position, except, you know, maybe the bladder might not, but with like the uterus, things are going to fall back. And so the really the best way to examine someone for prolapse is a standing is like the number one best way. There are a lot of, you know, medical providers who refuse to examine people standing. And I, I don't understand why that is, but hopefully that's also changing. But sitting up and then bearing down. So a seated position and then, you know, bearing down like you're trying to poop is the way that they should be examining someone who's having symptoms of prolapse because that's really how you would recreate, you know, gravity on on the organs.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, you're hitting on a lot of things like things in the system need to change. Even when you mentioned that first pelvic floor PT that you went to, Jen and I kind of, we always kind of cringe when we hear people say like, oh, that's normal or oh you're probably not going to be able to do that or I, I feel like that's just such an old school mindset that although some of the things are common that you may see after pregnancy that doesn't have to mean that they're normal or that you can't you know return back and progress back from certain things like you know frequent urination or leaking when you do certain exercises or things of certain intensity and i i think that that is coming a long way and I kind of Mm -hmm. wanted to ask when you were working, when you had finally found that uh, pelvic floor PT that is like, all right, I'll work with you. um, Can you talk about some of the things that you might have been doing with her to work on um, the prolapse that you had been dealing with? And then how did that, once you went through your procedure, how did that change? And did you go through, you know, rehab and stuff after the fact?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, working with her was awesome. I did a ton of my own work outside of the you know, a couple hours a week that I went and saw her. At the time, I was a, a stay-at-home mom. So, you know, I was very fortunate that I had a lot of time to spend on this. And I also trained um with a Pilates instructor locally who was very, very knowledgeable because what, you know, what I learned through her and a lot of the the reading and stuff that I had done was that, you know, pelvic floor issues and diastasis issues are really full body issues. So, you know, what we worked on in the sessions with her sometimes was some manual, you know, internal work on the pelvic floor, um some massage of the pelvic floor muscles. We did work on the psoas and some piriformis. And she did some some massage, some scraping. We did a lot of work on breathing. and then overall, really just movement mechanics how I was moving and, you know, highlighting, figuring out areas where I was a little weak and needed to strengthen and just kind of balancing things out. And then throughout the course of this, I also was diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder, which shed some light on why I had very significant prolapses when I hadn't had a traumatic delivery. Um, I didn't have any of the kind of like predispositions anything that I knew of that would have caused such a significant degree of prolapse for me.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: You know, it's known that like, if you have to have forcep delivery or something like that, you can get tears of like the levator muscles and things that can, you know, cause more significant prolapse, but I didn't have anything like that. My births were very, you know, easy and normal and and so, finding out about the connective tissue disorder just shed a lot of light on other things that I could work on to really help things. Um, I don't remember your other question. I know there were a couple of them.
0: well, I think he just asked about recovery after surgery as well. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. so um the, and the prolapses that I had. so I had a very significant uterine prolapse. So my uterus was just basically in my vagina pretty much. And, you know, the utero sacral ligaments, are what really kind of suspend the uterus and hold it up. And essentially mine just kind of got overstretched and, you know, just didn't recoil, didn't go back. And so I had a couple of options for the surgery at the time, um, you know, was done having kids. And so had a partial hysterectomy and they actually use mesh to suspend the top of the vagina or the cervix, that keep the cervix and suspend it to the sacrum. So that mm. just basically pulls everything back up where it needs to be. And then I had a recto seal. Um, so they do a repair of that where they actually go in and, you know, repair the defect that I had from childbirth. And then um, I had a plasty, So I had some tearing um, of the perineum, which is also very common with, with birth, but it wasn't, when they stitched it up afterward, sometimes they do pretty quick and I hate to say it, but a bit of a sloppy job sewing that stuff up, but it really is important structurally and for the support that it be repaired correctly. And mine never was initially. So that was all fixed and repaired so that I had that support, um, back in place there. And then I also had a um, ventral hernia above my belly button. And so they brought in a second surgeon to repair that hernia also. So it was like a six hour surgery. Um, it kind of rocked me afterward. I thought, you know, I was in really healthy, like pretty good shape, thought I would bounce back really quickly. And, um, I mean, it took me like a week to be able to walk to the mailbox and back. Like it was, it was a much bigger recovery than I'd anticipated but then i worked with the pelvic pt um after surgery for about 6 months just to really get everything coordinated again cuz it was almost like having another baby there was a lot of trauma in that area from all of the different sutures and scar tissue and so it really was um it took some work to get things kind of working together again the way that they needed to
0: that's huge and i think you know even just having a six-month rehab process after for such a huge undertaking with surgery just also speaks to the work that you were doing before. And I think that's so important to note. It's like there doesn't, yes, surgery is sometimes the thing that's going to ultimately help. However, always getting to understand what's happening with your body, trying to move your body, trying to work with someone and see how symptoms kind of resolve on their own. Before needing to jump into surgery, I think you just highlight that so well. And when you, before you did go into surgery, one, what were the symptoms that you were having that you were working through? And did those resolve before surgery or really just after?
2: So I had some hip pain and some pelvic pain that I had attributed to the prolapse issues. And I think that there was never a very clear discussion with. Um, the urogynecologist who did my surgery or the pelvic PT in terms of expectations. Like I think my assumption that I made myself was that that pain would go away after the surgery. So I was very surprised when it didn't Hmm. um, and was a bit disappointed, but the, I would say the bigger reason that I opted for the surgery was just that, you know, no amount of work was going to change the ligaments and pull the uterus back Mm -hmm. up to where it needed to be. And with the rectocele, when you have that bulging, you know, you can deal with like constipation and it has some GI implications that, you know, I didn't want to deal with forever. And they do have some devices called pessaries, which is, it's almost like a brace for your vagina, kind of, it's um, like a little, looks like a diaphragm. It's a little circular Well, actually they have different sides, they have cubes and different shapes, but it's a little thing that you basically put inside the vagina. It's kind of like scaffolding and it pushes everything back where it's supposed to be. And some women, you know, that's enough, like having a pessary that they can use that can relieve symptoms for them is enough. Um, It was very helpful for me for running. I could put the pessary in and I could go run Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't feel like the bulging feeling. I wouldn't leak any urine. Um, but I also, you know, I would go on trail runs with girlfriends and I would have to like, you know, hold on, I have to put my pessary and, you yeah. know, like it yeah. just, I'm like, I don't want to deal with this forever. I'm, you know, in my early thirties, like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this forever. It just felt like a, I don't know, like an old lady thing to mm-hmm. me, I guess. It just made me feel different and it had a big impact on, you know, my self-esteem and even my sexuality. And I just didn't want to deal with all of that anymore.
0: Has the mesh or surgery or anything from that experience, um, have you felt any repercussions afterwards or do you feel like it it really did its job and it really helped and you
2: don't really feel any symptoms from it anymore? Um, I mean, you know, scar tissue is something that can just be problematic. Um, So I have had some issues with scar tissue, but ultimately it did, you know, pull things really kind of back into position where they needed to be. I think hindsight's always 20-20. And I think I had very big expectations for the surgery and I was a bit disappointed. um, Like I mentioned that the pain Mm -hmm. that I was having did not go away. Um, I also think, you know, at the time I was married, I was done having kids and couldn't um, have even imagined the things that would take place over the the next few years, but, you know, ended up getting divorced and, you know, am now engaged in, I can't have more kids because I don't have a uterus. And at the time, you know, I felt like I'm done having kids, like I'm past that chapter of my life and didn't really process or understand how permanent that decision was. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, when I've had some some other young women reach out to me and like, are you happy with your surgery? Would you recommend that? You know, I'm struggling to decide what to do. And I guess I, I always try to stress to them that like, I know your life the way you it is right now today feels permanent. But I I think if you can avoid making really permanent decisions like that, even if it means you might have a second surgery down the line, um, that can be a a good mm. option, I think, for younger women. i I could have opted for ligament suspension where they leave the uterus in and they just go in and kind of cinch up the ligaments um, but the the length that that lasts wasn't nearly as long. The surgery I had was supposed to be like, "You do this, and you should never need another surgery." Hmm. Wow. which at the time sounded good to me, but yeah, um, exactly. you know, in hindsight, like I, that suspension probably would have been a better option for me.
1: I think that's really good perspective and thanks for sharing that. And I also like how you, you know, kind of outlined that, oh, I thought that this surgery would take away some of that pelvic and hip pain that I was experiencing or, you know, the mesh, like what are the, I mean, you and I have talked a little bit about um, this previously because I've, I had issues with bilingual or (laughs) bilingual bilateral inguinal hernias. and I've had some diastasis recti, and for me it was just a huge um sign that I wasn't managing my core pressure as well and I went in and had that mm-hmm. repaired and meshes put in for my uh, inguinal hernias and you know I continued to have issues I continued to have very similar pain. I started having urge incontinence symptoms that I think also stemmed from what I was dealing with with my <laughs> um Core pressure management issues, along with concussions that I was getting throughout football and, and car accidents, but not until I got down to the root cause of working a lot on my breath, working a lot on the awareness of my body, was I able to manage that and not not even expect it to ever completely go away. Like it, it's there and it's something that I can always be aware of and and learn to better manage through my own education and my my body and how it operates. <laughs>
2: again, having having that insight that I had a connective tissue disorder and then being able to learn more about that was very beneficial because what I did learn is that this I mean, this is something that I will, you know, continue to work on and revisit over the course of my life. because of the kind of excess movement in some of my joints, the pelvic floor can tend to kind of um overwork in an attempt to create more stability where mm. there isn't stability. And so I just know that when I start to get symptomatic like that that it's a good reminder of like oh wow I haven't been doing those little you know exercises for like my glute med and you know some of the stuff that when you're feeling good you kind of neglect some of that accessory work or at least I do. So it's kind of a constant you know, when things start to flare up, I'm like, oh, well, I haven't been doing the things that I know I need to do. So I need to go back and revisit those or, you know, I haven't been paying as much attention to my breath work or, you know, it's just good, good reminders. And I, at this point, you know, it's very manageable. um, And I have a TheraWand in the shower and a TheraWand by the bed and I can do my own, you know, internal massage work, which can be super helpful. Um, So it's really... I don't know. It's like everyone kind of has stuff that they work on over the course of their life, and I'm really okay with that. I just, I guess, I've gotten to a point where it's just it's kind of just me taking care of my body, and it's just what I do, and it's it's not really that big of a deal to me. Well, and I think that's
0: that's everything, though, Katie. Right? I mean, you just highlighted yeah. what I hope everyone can take away is that. No matter what surgery you do, no matter what fix you try to do, no matter how many exercises you think are are perfect, it's not about a one-time experience, but it's about mm-hmm. a lifetime of working with your body, not against your body, but with your body to continue to learn more and to address more and to reduce symptoms that you have at the time. And the more that you do it, the more comfortable you get with, oh, this is popping up. I know how to manage this. I know how to handle this. And the more empowerment you feel in order to do that. I know that you guys have now thus created such an incredible platform that hits on so many different topics, you know, not just on movement. Can you talk about what Spread Wealth really means and and why you kind of have
2: created the platform that you have? I mean, when we were coming up with the name, the the name was Wealth, so W Health, and it was really you know whole health was kind of the premise for that and the saying your health is your wealth kind mm-hmm. of inspired that because i really think that that's true and you know one of my biggest takeaways from my years of working as a nurse is that you know when you're taking care of of people who are dying you know nobody ever talks about i wish i worked for, or i wish i had that car that i wanted or you know they don't talk about materialistic shit <laughs> People (laughs) express regret. I wish I spent more time with my children. Mm. I wish that I wouldn't have smoked my whole life. I wish I had taken care of my health. Like, I heard a lot of that. And there was no discrimination based on like socioeconomic status. Like, that was something you heard from people who, you know, were billionaires and from people who had nothing. Mm. That because you can't buy that, right? Like, you can, you can pay for a chef or things that might make it easier to have a healthy life, but it still comes down to you putting in the work. So that was really kind of the promise for for what we created and really just wanting to give people the education and the confidence um, to know how to take care of a lot of things themselves and how to take ownership over their health and how to advocate for themselves and, you know, how to seek out the knowledge that they didn't have, but that they needed. Because I think that a lot of times when it comes to any kind of health issues, I think that the unknown is very scary for people. And there's kind of this thing that happens where people just take whatever the doctor says, you know, very, very literally and concrete. And like, there is no other way of looking at it. There are no other solutions. And so You know, I think it's just important for people to do their own research and seek out the education and just really take ownership over their body and their health Mm because nobody's Mm -hmm. ever going to care about it like they do.
1: If someone is to come to wealth, say, like what are the different pillars that you work on with people or or what would somebody expect coming into that program?
2: Yeah, so um, we kind of identified the the pillars of health, the things that we felt were the most important. So it's nutrition, movement, um, restoration, and recovery. Um, And then, you know, mental health component, really just how you manage stress, how well you communicate, um, what your relationships are like. So those are kind of the main areas where we focus. Um, And then we have the two programs right now. So Limitless is, you know, more geared toward people who are in pain. And then there's a lot of work there again on the mindset, you know, with pain as well. Um, And then the strength and conditioning program is, is the more intense, you know, workouts and strengthening and conditioning work and helping people take it up a level.
0: (laughs) Well, you guys definitely do a great job, not only in showing people what's possible, but continuing to educate along the way and that's what I I appreciate about what you guys do your openness your vulnerability the realness in in all aspects of health and it's not just it's not just movement and it requires all of these aspects to start to bring awareness to and you know and and start to address the person as a whole <laughs> something we often miss mm-hmm. in the system wrapping it back to where we started right so I think this is incredible. We're definitely going to link up to it in the show notes, but you guys right now can go to spread wealth um, with that W in mind.
1: Or cater tot.
0: (laughs) Or cater tot. And and go check them out. At least go follow them on Instagram because you're going to learn so, so much. And then diving in, getting that accountability, getting that support on a deeper level, we always recommend.
1: So much. I mean, you'll learn so much. And I have saved more posts of both of yours, uh, yours and Andrew's and the Spread Wealth account that I definitely need to go back and actually do. I just <laughs> saved them because they're amazing movements. But the way that you guys live this out and continue to do this in yourself, I think is the most inspiring thing. Um, both of you too, the way that you approach your own health, it really shows that you're going to be working with somebody or you're you're genuine and authentic in the stuff that you preach to clients that may come to you.
2: So, I appreciate that. Thank you. We we definitely respect that a lot about you guys as well. I think it's it's always easy to tell people what to do, but yeah. it's um I think it's a lot more admirable if you're if you're actually living, you know, proof of what what is possible and yeah. you know, it, being in a profession where we get to do this for our living is really it's really a gift. We're very fortunate and yeah. I definitely appreciate the fact that most people don't have as much time as we do to devote to this. Mm-hmm. Um so mm-hmm. I think that we're we're very fortunate and I'm sure you guys probably feel the same way. Oh, very
0: much so. Very much. Thank you so much, Katie. I know that this is your story just being able to hear it and and really walk us through the entire experience from front to back has has just been very helpful and and I just appreciate you for your vulnerability and your openness and willingness to share, so thank you.
1: Such a valuable conversation with Katie, grateful to have her on to discuss this topic that just gets to be talked about more and more in the area of women's health. Remember, we are launching our Move to Improve Challenge sale, so go to the link down in the show notes and get in while it is just $45 for this early, early bird pricing and move to improve your body this March 1st when we start the challenge. There are prizes for involvement in the challenge. There are prizes for inviting friends in, so find your accountability partners, get them to come with you, and of course, tune in on future episodes of the Optimal Body Podcast.